Hi, I'm Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. Our mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. You can find out everything there is to know about the VBC on our website, www.veteransbreakfastclub.org. Welcome to VBC's seventh episode of Lioness, The Origin Story. This is a special podcast dedicated to telling the history of Lioness vets from their point of view. And over the course of this series, uh, we have covered uh, everything from Team Lioness uh, to female engagement teams. Uh, we're, we're now into the cultural support teams, uh, which we're going to be getting to more stories about that with our special guest today. And our goal really is to shed light on this unexplored history. Joining me, as always, is filmmaker and writer Daria Summers, and uh, usually our Army veteran and original line is Shannon Morgan. She's out sick uh, for this episode, but we're hoping to have Shannon back for the next one to hear more stories from her. In 2008, Daria, uh, along with her filmmaking colleague Meg McClagan, released Lioness, a documentary that revealed the history of, gr of a group of women support soldiers who went to Iraq in 2003 as mechanics, clerks, and engineers, but ended up serving as the original Lioness soldiers. Although the Lioness's mission was to defuse tensions with Iraqi women and children, they fought in some of the bloodiest battles of the Iraq war. This was prior to the combat exclusion policy uh, being nixed. And if you're joining yeah. us here in our seventh episode and have been listening throughout, thank you so much for supporting this podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for our, our next special guest in our conversation today. Daria, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you so much, Sean. Um, our guest today is retired U.S. Army Warrant Officer and Cultural Support Team Leader, Raquel Patrick. And first, let me say on behalf of the Veterans Breakfast Club, how thrilled we are to have you, uh, Raquel, on our podcast today, because your accomplishments are truly impressive. Uh, to give everyone a few highlights awesome. of your amazing career, I'll start by saying you joined the Army in 1990, as an avionics special equipment repairer. By 1993, you were deployed to Somalia as a squad leader with K Company, 159th Aviation. That was followed by duty as a platoon sergeant with A Company, 7159th Aviation in Germany. In 2002, you were selected to become an electronic systems maintenance warrant officer. After various assignments as a platoon leader within the 3rd Infantry Division at Fort Stewart, and then as a warrant officer within the 25th Infantry Division headquarters in Hawaii, you served three deployments in Iraq from 2005 to 2009. And as if one deployment to Somalia and three to Iraq wasn't enough, in 2011, you deployed to Afghanistan as a cultural support team leader in the third special forces group. Raquel's post Afghanistan service is as long as it is impressive. Suffice it to say that in 2018, she retired after 28 years in the army. Her numerous awards and decorations include the combat action badge, the army commendation medal, a national defense ribbon, two stars, a humanitarian medal, an Iraq campaign medal, four stars, an Afghanistan campaign medal, a NATO service medal, and the United Nations operations in Somalia and the German Armed Forces badge. And last but not least, the Ordnance Order of the Samuel Sharp Award, a distinction that recognizes the highest standards of integrity, moral character, and outstanding professional competence. Raquel is the mother of two children, Ciara, 26, and Lewis, 22, and the proud grandmother of three-year-old Veronica. And she splits her time between Manhattan, where she is today, and Central Florida. Welcome, 
Raquel. We're so glad to have you here. Well, thank you. (laughs) That was quite the uh, introduction. (laughs) Um, I'm so humbled and honored to be able to speak um, to you all today. So, Raquel, let's jump right in and tell me about where you were, what you were doing when you heard about the cultural support team program, and what intrigued you or motivated you to find out about it and apply? Where was I? I think I was, at, at that time, I was working at the 3rd Infantry Division, uh, Division Headquarters. Um, I was working in, you know, Division Staff, which, um, you know, kind of takes you away from the soldiers. You're kind of doing staff work and a lot of paperwork and a lot of management and, you know, and it was, yeah, it's a great job, but um, when this opportunity presented itself, I was like, this is amazing. This is a, like, this is, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity to get to work with special operators, especially since I had been in Somalia and there were certain times that like, uh, even though I had been pulling missions, um, doing guard duty, being commander's driver, they were like, oh, you know, you can't go out there because you're a woman, you know, you can't, you know, do combat, you know, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. It, it just really intrigued me. And I like the idea. I mean, I'm a service person. I mean, that's my calling. I mean, I love the idea of helping people, especially the oppressed. That was my original calling. You know, I was, uh, uh, when I joined the army, I was inspired by a stabilization operation. I lived in Panama, uh, 1989, when uh, in the U.S. did a stabilization operation, a just cause to remove um, Manuel Noriega. And uh, I remember watching the soldiers that were like escorting our school buses and things like that. And I was just super inspired. I mean, it was just what I wanted to do. Um, so yeah, so that's what I I trained for it. I told my family, and I'm like, this is something really important to me. You know, it's. Uh, I had a talk with them and I got their approval and went for it. So, um, and what did that, what did going for it entail, right? Because you didn't, you have to apply to get in. I did have to apply. So when I talked to my um, supervisors, um, you know, I had, I was very fortunate. I had really amazing leaders. Um, one of them had been former Rangers and they worked with JSOC. And he's like, you know, he looked at me and he's like, I think this is a really good fit for you and I wish you the best of luck and you know they signed you know and I got my approval paper you know my recommendation letters and things like that um to go and so then you were uh going to uh train you went to uh Fort Liberty which at the time was called Fort Bragg, Bragg. which is where oh yeah special operations headquarters Mm -hmm. so what Talk to me about that process. How yes. long did you train? Um, before getting there, I think I had about three months to train. And basically, I would get up and probably like 3.30 and do, and I would go with, um, you know, I went to the special operations recruiting station and they were like, what are you doing here? And um, and I was like, well, there's this program. And a lot of them, it was really confusing to them because they weren't sure what was going on. But they're like, okay, well, you can train with our guys. So I would do relentless amounts of like you know uh training with them ruck rucking and carrying sandbags water bottles um you know just extra pt and then i would do my regular pt with my organization um and just and then i would try to work out after after i was just trying to get as strong as i could eating as much as i could you know um to get myself prepared i think i gained like 25 pounds i wanted to be really ready and fit um in order to perform at my highest capacity um 
it was taxing, but it was exhilarating. And then once I got to Fort Bragg and I, I met all these amazing women from around um, all the different components and uh, just around the world, really. And they were just top class females. And I was, I, I, to a certain extent, I was like, wow, this is, this is my tribe. You know, these are women that were super competitive, but in a, in a really healthy way, you know, like we pushed each other and it was like, we were each other's big, biggest cheerleaders. And we knew that this was important work and we wanted to make sure we were prepared to do our best. Were you uh, in with the sort of the very first women who were being trained to be CSTs? Yes, I was with CST2, which was um, the same class that um, Ashley White was in, which I don't know if you've heard of that, her whole story, Ashley Swarter. I, uh, I was I was a class leader yeah. for most, of, not all, but most of the time with that class. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so at what point in the training did you get um, receive sort of Afghanistan cultural training or tribal training? Well, we first did kind of an assessment. We did an assessment. It was like 10 days or so. Um, I got, I don't know, I guess we would call it 100 hours of how, um, where we just basically went in and we weren't allowed to have any caffeine, any supplements, any painkillers, um, any watches, any sense of time or space. They were just, you know, they gave us like um, time pacers on our boots. And, you know, they would give us different challenges. We would go on rocks. We didn't know the distances. We just had to give it our all. Um, we would have to solve um, obstacle courses as teams. Um, we'd be put in positions of leadership and also, you know, positions in the team. We didn't have names. We only had numbers. Um, it was really um, just challenging um, and hard, but I don't know, worth worth the determination because we knew that, what, that the job we had ahead of us was important. Right. And but did you have any like kind of sit down uh, courses in the culture? Yes, we did. We, um, we had plenty of classes. I mean, aside from the physical stuff, we have plenty of uh you know, cultural classes, we had language classes, um, we had, um, uh, you know, marksmanship, we had, I mean, anything you can think of, anything you can encompass that, you know, was attributed to supporting special operations forces, we had, um, and that was over a course of about three months or so. After our assessment, you know, we got selected, and then from different components, and then after the assessment process, we went to the training course. And then after the training course, what they did was they separated uh, girls, uh, females, women, into groups that were either supporting direct action or um, uh, just village stability operations, which I specifically wanted. I actually wrote a letter, a letter to the to the board um, because I felt, um, as a mother, uh, I just felt like I had, I have. A good connection with children and women and it was important to me to be able to connect them to their governance and help them support themselves um, during that time. And is that what you got? I did. I did. I got village stability operations. Mm -hmm. Wow, that, yeah, that's fascinating. That And I mean, it's great that they were so responsive and you obviously made your case. And so yeah. um, how did it, how were you, um, selected as a leader or was that a natural sort of because of the hierarchy uh i'm not sure i mean well the officers are typically the team leaders team leads for um the cst we were we were a 
we were put in teams of two, usually an NCO and an officer. And I was the only warrant officer at the time uh, as part of CSC2. So I was um, uh, partnered up with um, Specialist Wu, um, um, Sergeant Wu at the time. Sure. Okay. And so then after your training and and you're, you're partnered up, um, what happened? Where did you go? Where did you, where were you sent out and for how long? Um, so we also got a translator. Um, I actually had, we went through a couple of translators while we were out there. Um, I was out in the Aruzgan province. Um, I actually, even though we deployed with third infantry group, we supported first group um, and the SEALs while we were out there. Um, probably depth group, um, and we were in the southeast, sort of southeast, in very remote spaces. And what, what was the name of the province again? Aruzgan. It was right beside okay. the Helmand River. Mm -hmm. Right. No, I see it. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so I'm I'm very curious as to how it works. So you were, um, like like in literally were you flown out part way did you have to hike the rest were you helicoptered in um no we were um well so first we went to uh bagram and uh there we were assigned to our teams um it was a really curious process because we weren't really allowed to uh, connect with them until we got to our forward operating base which is terrancott and then at that point you know i i you know reached out to the teams and uh you know they were like uh they weren't really, it was it was a little bit of a jumbled process, you know, because they weren't really sure how to use us or what we were doing. Um, but I tried to make myself as resourceful, myself and my teammate, as resourceful as possible. We asked what they needed from the forward operating base. And, you know, we brought in the mail, some weapons, stuff that they needed um, and from Terrancot out to the, and we were helicoptered in in the middle of the night. As a matter of fact, when we were helicoptered in, um, we happened to have a, uh, some rangers on the uh, helicopter with us that were returning a person of interest who was blindfolded and handcuffed. <laughs> I'm like, well, this is going to be fun. Um, and he was released uh, at the same location that we got out. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be a fun process. Let's, let's get into it. Okay. So what, I guess what I'm hearing, which really intrigues me is that, so when you first uh, show up, um, with your special forces counterpart, so mm -hmm. were they? Um, how did you identify? How how would I understand them? Were they rangers, just special forces, or was there any specific well, sort of? We were we were attached to an ODA. Um, so, but there were we did different missions, um, but for the most part, we were attached to the ODAs. Uh, what are ODAs? Um, Operational Delta um, attachments. So. Um, um, green beret teams, I guess. Okay. Mm -hmm. that, that helps. That helps. Um, any for our listeners or anyone who's not okay. familiar with some of the jargon, understand yeah. even right. if it's an approximation. So, yeah. in a way, what I hear you saying is that as you arrived, uh, there, they were like, okay, not. I mean, they obviously had some idea that you were coming. They had very little oh. notice. We were kind of a new tool to put in their toolbox and they were halfway through their deployment. So it was a little bit, even though they gave us all this training on how to integrate with the culture and Afghanistan and this and that, 
they didn't they didn't do a great job of telling us how to integrate with the with the soft teams themselves. Um, so that was a little bit of a challenge. Myself, you know, at that point, I had been in the army for almost twenty years, so I had been used to working with men um, at high capacities. But you know, the soft the soft teams were not used to working with women, so the dynamic was a little bit um, tumultuous at first. Um, we had to get um, kind of like we had to like make a clear understanding that this is this is what we're here for. We're here to kind of add value to your um, to your team. You know, we kind of had to m- make a, a case for ourselves. You know, um, and it's, you know, and we were one part of the attachments. You know, they also get other attachments. They get military dogs. They get civil affairs. They get miso or psyops. Um, so it was just it was a learning process for both of us um, to kind of get in there and try to you know bring some value to the to to the to the mission. And it, it was successful in several occasions and maybe not so successful in others, um, depending on your point of view, because it was, you know, very new to them. So that was, um, um, that was challenging, but at the same time, it was still rewarding and uh, fast paced and you're, you're at the tip of the spear. You're at the, you're, 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 you're going in, you're doing the missions with these, these, you know, very, um, highly qualified, you know, well-oiled machine men, you know, um, going in there. And then you're able to speak to the women because they are not able to speak to the women. Um, you know, so now you have uh, more understanding of the information of what's going on and you can confirm more things for them um, as you're out there doing that. You know, we also paid respect, respect to the culture. We try to wear headscarves and long sleeve shirts and colorful things and, you know, wore makeup and eyeliner because that's very in tune with their culture, with their superstitions or their beliefs. Um, we try to be very respectful of that in order to integrate more uh, seamlessly. So, so that's ironic because it sounds like you specifically brought makeup over there, knowing that you might have to use it as a, yeah. as a, as a tool to yes. go out and participate yes. in the culture. Yes. Not only makeup, makeup, jewelry, bracelets, um, things like that. We brought um, candy and stuff for the kids. We had cookies. You know, we just used every kind of human um, uh, emotion and, you know, kind of winning hearts and minds in order for us to be able to support what was going on out there. In this instance, then, you were literally doing something that the special forces um or you're probably doing something more effectively that the the men who were special forces couldn't just couldn't do yes i like to say so yes mm-hmm. was there a point was there a point um like two things i i want you to describe like the first mission you went on where you felt you were actually out on a mission to accomplish something and then at at what point did any light bulbs go off in the minds of uh, the men where they were like wow that's useful Uh, we went on certain missions that were called like um, ticket and corridor well we we would you know knock you know try to and and get into these um, family compounds and uh, speak you know know, we would get the women out and the for children and we would find things, you know, like suicide vests sitting on the kitchen table and we would ask the women, you know, who's, who's are these, you know, and they would be like, oh, we don't know, we don't know, we have no idea. And then part of the culture there is kind of like very transactional and they'll lie to you. Um, 
because they just want to see if you're savvy enough to keep asking questions. So, you know, we use our translator. We had very great translators that would, you know, we were like, hey, we'd ask them a question about three or four times, and then finally they would confess to things, or we would confirm whether or not certain people were living in the house or not living in the house. And, you know, and sometimes they would be like, oh, no, 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 that person, I don't know who that is, this and that. And then when the SF um, operators would, would grab that person, all of a sudden the mother would be like, oh, my child, my son. I'm like, wait a minute. I thought you, you said you didn't know him. You know, so it was very... um a lot of chess, chess playing out there, um, trying to get to the heart of the situation and trying to, um, and that was one of like, probably my, me and my partner's third mission, uh, where we really had brought some effectiveness uh, in order providing that information. Well, right. And I would imagine that if in uh, some of these homes, if they had a suicide vest, just lying out on a table they had no idea that you you, you know um cultural support teams were about to come knocking right no they didn't we had good intel on uh, when to i mean that's where that's why we went because we knew something was going on and then you know we would do dinners with um um the local leaders we would attend uh leader engagements um we would sit around and it was very you know it's very un confusing to to them because they knew we were women but we also had weapons and we also wore pants um and they were concerned about us bringing our western ways to them but you know we were there to assure them that that wasn't the case and we were you know we would say things like um you know we're here for to help you um, raise better men. Oh, okay. Yeah, all right. Well, maybe we'll allow you to do that. You know, that would give it, gain us more access to certain places um, and certain things. We would work with like local dental, find out one dental doctor was actually an arms dealer. Um, I had dinner. We had dinner wow. at his house. And uh, I remember, you know, I'm kind of a, I'm not a vegetarian, but I really like eating my fruits and vegetables. And I made the mistake of eating a pomegranate one day that was hand opened by the one of the guys and I got really sick for like three days. Had to take some antibiotics. Was um, in the bathroom for quite a few days, and uh, it was, it was oh a good time. Good times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, did you um, were you in the same sort of village area, one village area, or where did you move around? We moved around. We actually um, did three areas. Um, I'm not sure if I can be very specific where I was at, but it was some very remote areas. You know, we had no running water. We had, um, you know, outhouses, um, you know, that were like, you know, holes in the ground. They threw lime down, fun stuff. Dishes, you know, out in the open, campfires. You know, we didn't have the support of cooks and um, we didn't have normal, um, like, forward operating-based supports. So we had to do everything ourselves. You know, our food was dropped from, uh, in pallets. You know, uh, planes would come by and drop parachutes of food, and we'd go pick it up and uh, support ourselves for, you know, a couple of weeks till the next drop. We got very okay, inventive. And when you say, um, right. When you say support yourselves, you're referring to yourself, your partner, and the other members of the special forces team that you yes. were with, right? Right. 
we were in safe houses uh, amongst the villages. So typically there were probably like 25 to 35 people in total um, in our facility. So, and we supported ourselves. We did everything ourselves. We cooked for ourselves. We cleaned for ourselves. We did our own field sanitation. We did um, our own um, def base defense or, you know, house defense. You know, if anything kicked off, is there any troops in contact? It was us doing it all ourselves. And did you have did you have any of those moments where your safe house was targeted at all? Yes, we had. Um, yeah, we had a couple of. When we were in the middle of the night, we would get um, small arms fire going towards our house, and you know we would have to activate ourselves. And um, you know, so when we slept in our cots, everything was within arm's reach. You know, you kind of slept even in the dark. You kind of knew. You know, you kind of had a process. You know, where everything is at. You know, our cots were laid up on pallets, um, and, you know, we had little partitions within our tents, you know, separated by walls. Um, and we would have, like, nails where I would have, like, my Kevlar, my, you know, my vest. Everything was, you know, so if I woke up suddenly, I knew where to go and what to do and how to move out. I loved my position because I had the minigun, and that was a great weapon to to fire up. Absolutely. Um, and so, you know, in a way, not only were you negotiating uh, the you know, women and children in this new culture, but you're in your in your safe house where you were all living, you were negotiating a new set of relationships with, you know, as well as the men in the special forces yeah. who probably weren't used to having, uh, uh, you know, cultural support teams, all females living with them in this kind of situation. So everybody was probably negotiating new territory. It was, yeah, yes. I mean, I was very fortunate and unfortunate. I mean, I had um, some great guys, but there was some old, you know, mentality. You know, we were very early and, you know, and I don't want to speak for everyone. Of course, I'm just talking about my experience, um, you know, very early on, you know, and, you know, sometimes they're intimidated, you know, like I was at the time I was CW3, you know, and you know, I'm dealing with senior NCOs and things like that. So, you know, it was, I was just like, Hey, I'm not here to undermine your authority or anything like that. I'm here to support you. And, you know, so it was, you know, and then of course me and my teammate, we had to show a united force at all times because if they smelled blood in the water, it was like, you know, it's, it's game on. Um, and it's not personal. Um, it's just the way they treat everyone. So it had nothing to do with me being a female, it had to do with just being part of the team, make sure you, you can handle it. Do you think there's that that's really evidence of a, a very specific kind of psychology that is in operation among special forces? Well, it was yes, I could say that I can say yes in my experience during that time. Yes, it may have changed. I, I don't know what it's like now in the military. I know women have um, made their um, positions, um, you know, and their standards and their abilities. Um, displayed them very uh, honorably and heroically. So I hope that's changed. I was glad to be a part of the first ones to break, kind of break through that. No, absolutely. It was, that was, um, it was like going out to the very front of the furthest, most front lines you could get on in a position like that in Afghanistan, especially I mean, for women. Um, but what I want to ask you, given that you moved around to different villages, yeah. did you, were there any Afghan women mm -hmm. who you 
developed relationships with over the months or that who you got to know? And if so, what did you pick up? What was their response? What, what did they think of you? I mean, I'm trying to get, understand what that exchange was like. It was, it was a beautiful process. I mean, I think they were, um, you know, I think we were both fascinated by each other's um, resilience and strength, you know, of dealing with the circumstances and challenges of living out and, you know, and dealing with uh, both the austere environment and, uh, you know, the mountain ranges that we were at, you know, it was, a, it was, it was mutual respect, you know, um, they, uh, you know, and they're, and they're, you know, and I can't, speak for them but you know they live a different lifestyle like i it's, it's really hard to put yourself mentally like you know this is all i know compared to like the, the even though you know there, there's something to be said about women's rights in america we have we're so blessed of the uh amount of things that we're able to do compared to that culture but you know i'm not there to judge them you know i'm just there to help them you know connect with their governance and provide them the support um that they could have at the time. And um, so I have two questions. One is what, uh, whether it was one day or a period, uh, what a period of time, what was your hardest day or your hardest mission? What was, what got diciest? I think one of the hardest things for me was, uh, there was a couple, but one in particular was a young pregnant girl that showed up at our camp during, because um, you know, we had medical support there and she had a breached pregnancy and it was not looking good and there was not much we could do. Um, and, uh, you know, we recommended that she go out and uh, go to the nearest hospital. Um, but those were roads that were being blocked by the Taliban. And, uh, you know, I knew if she stayed there with us that she probably wouldn't make it. And that would just not be a good look for, you know, I don't know. So we, you know, I don't know if it's against our better judgment, but we were like, hey, you need to get to the hospital if you can. Um, and unfortunately, she didn't make it. They tried to go, Taliban, you know, blocked their roads and, you know, the pregnancy delivery didn't go well and I know that she passed and that was probably really like it was like a one of the heartbreaking moments for me that's tragic how how old was she do you think she wasn't I, I don't know I, she was a teenager that's for sure and her husband was you know in her I don't know probably mid-30s early 40s you know um they're tiny you know we had a radio station as well so we tried to put the information out you know in order to kind of um you know, hey, let them know, like, well, we're here to support you. And, you know, this is what the Taliban is doing to you, um, blocking your roads and, and causing these things. And, you know, anything you guys can tell us or give us information so we can help you um, prevent these kind of things. That, that was probably one of my hardest missions. Hardest days. Well, I agree. Yeah, that sounds excruciating and tragic because, in a way, if she could have gotten to the hospital... Yeah, you know, ability yeah. is she could have been. You know, we didn't. I mean, we had. We had we, I mean, we had enough stuff to do, but not to deliver a breach. You know, and it looked like an umbilical cord entanglement. So we, it was, it was not a good day. 
And um, what did you ever come in contact, close contact with the Taliban? Um. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually what actually that? some of our local police chief were former Taliban. Were former Taliban. Um, so we would actually try to retrain them. Um, you know, it, it's just a very cultural, suspicious thing going on over there. There are no schools open. Um, the kids are just running around, you know, feral. You know, we try to establish an educational program with our translator over the radio station in order for them to get some type of education. I'm like, don't you guys want schools and, you know, this and that. And, you know, and the local leaders would say, yeah, yeah, we want this. We want this. But it was just a political game. You know, uh, they would say one thing and just do another. And it was a tough mission. It was just tough, tough, um, frustrating, you know, because you feel like you're spinning your wheels left and right and not really gaining any traction. But, you know, I like to think I made a or we made a difference a little bit for the time that we were there. Absolutely. I mean, hearts and minds and the things that were planted there um, remain in people's memories. You yeah. know, there are women there who remember you and what you did. So the children, especially uh, there was one young boy. I never forget him. I forget his name. I'm not good. with My memory's not that great. But I remember he would be sick every week, you know, because we always gave him cookies after their, their treatment. Oh. And I'm like, wait a minute, what's wrong with you? He's like, oh, my stomach hurts. And I'm like, are you sure your stomach hurts? He's like, oh, yeah, it hurts really bad. I need medicine. He goes, and am I going to get that cookie? <laughs> and so he made sure he got a couple of extra cookies that he would take home to his sister. So make sure your sister gets some, too. So that was always, the children always, you know, brought so much joy to my heart, you know, because children are children, no matter where in the world they're at. They're always the same. They're always curious. They, they're fascinated by games and uh, we showed them, I brought National Geographic magazines out there and I would show them animals from different countries and they would be like, wow, this is amazing. Where is this? You know, and, you know, and, and pictures of the ocean, you know, because Afghanistan is landlocked, so they don't get that. So um, for me, that was that probably like some of the most rewarding work I got to do out there. And how, what were you able to accomplish in terms of, uh, setting up or helping them uh, improve any educational opportunities they had going on? Well, we did. Well, we did have a radio literacy program, but, you know, I don't long, I don't know how long that stayed up. I mean, it was there for the several months that we were there. So I know that was up. And then sometimes we had groups of kids come in. Like I said, we would have host them lunch. We would give, show them shows, give them food. Um, you know, so just small things like that. We had a lot of medical outreaches. So we would have go into the villages, different villages, um, to kind of get a, a, a sense of how many people were there, who was there, um, you know, who are persons of interest, where they were, and things like that, um, provide food. We would inspect local jails. We would train local police. We would work with the local commandos as well. Um, to get people of interest. I mean, and then also, you know, and it was hard to trust because, you know, these people go back and forth and they were getting threatened by the Taliban all the time. Like we see you working with the American soldiers, you know, and they would get letters stapled to their barns and, you know, so it was, um, it was a difficult process, but, you know, in different areas, we provided different support. So, um, at, at least while we were there. Um, and then, you know, then we had future CSTs go in there and, and do the same things, you know, so we were right patches of assistance um, while we were there. What is there anything in terms of, I mean, I, I feel like 
you know, more and more of the public like understands to some extent what a cultural support team was, is, and what they function as, how they function. But is there anything that specifically like a misconception or something you would like um, people to know about the special aspect of your work over there? Like, what question am I um, not asking? I, I I don't know what question you're asking. I mean, what 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 do you want to know? I mean, you asked me. I mean, there's a lot of well, questions of like, oh, are females able to handle that kind of thing? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. But it, it takes toll, like any other type of um, job that you know that you know you see the the dark side of humanity. You know, and that's true with first responders, firefighter, policemen. You know, even though it's work that you you want to tell yourself you can handle and you can do. And at the time you can do all of those things, but you know, you carry it home with you and it's really difficult to um, sometimes to, you know, process that trauma. And uh, that's probably the hardest thing that, you know, we've had to deal with, you know, and then once we are back, you know, and then myself and some other veterans, you know, um, I know they're having a hard time. They're getting denied their medical disabilities because they're like, mm, you, what you guys weren't out there you guys weren't doing that because at first it was kind of you know clandestine we weren't really supposed to be out there so it's not really fully detailed in our records so it that's been probably like the biggest heartache um and it's not that we want accolades or anything like that we, we don't uh, i really don't and it's really difficult i'm a very private person so for me to speak to this publicly it's really about getting the message out there that hey you know um I don't need the applause or anything, but I do want the acknowledgement, you know, like I worked really hard. I sacrificed a lot of things. Um, not, not just myself, all, all of the females that were out there and the men, you know, um, and it's just, you know, to be acknowledged by our government and given the bright support and medical things that we need. That's probably my, my biggest reason to going on any show, um, and and speaking uh, publicly, you know, uh, about about these things because they're they're hard. They do take a toll on you. Um, you know, I had a, I had a, it cost me my marriage, quite frankly. You know, because um, I had a lot of trauma upon my return, and you know, it was really hard on my kids. You know, um, I love them, and they're very resilient. But you know, I'm not. You know, I'm not. Um, ashamed to say that I had tough days and it was hard on them. And I know it, they had tough days dealing with me and they probably still do, but, and I love them so much. And, and, and I'm so humbled and honored to be their, their, their mom. And, um, and I, I just want them to know I'm, you know, I'm working really hard to get myself right. I understand that. And I thank you for sharing sharing that and um that you make a very important point and um i just want to um applaud you for saying that because it is so important that um veterans uh women veterans and all veterans and people in those positions understand that you know you do you know the war doesn't end when you leave it or those situations don't end when you remove yourself from them physically they you carry them inside you so um but yeah. it does what you what you were just describing um does make me think because when um, my colleague and i made the film lioness 
really about the women mm-hmm. from 2003, 2004, who were among the very, very first to be used in a capacity mm-hmm. uh, outside what they were sent there for and put in these unexpected situations, which yeah. basically defied the combat exclusion policy. So what's interesting And I applaud me, those women because they did it with very little training. I mean, we had a lot of formal training going out there so the linus program my hats off to them you know that had to be really tough as well yes and well what i the reason i mention it uh raquel is because some of the things that like after we made the film um and mm-hmm. with uh, some of the women uh, went up to capitol hill and you know gave some testimony as to their experiences and one of their main issues was really echoed exactly what you said, which was, you know, yes, we don't want bright lights, this, that, or the other thing, but we can't get the um, sort of the recognition on our paperwork, the recognition so that we can get the benefits, whether it's from the Mm -hmm. VA, uh, that, you know, we really need to heal ourselves to move on. Right. Right. And right. Oh, the men get get it approved, no questions asked, you know. But when it comes to us, they're like, "Well, you weren't that important," and that and that hurts, you know. That hurts absolutely. To the core. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine hearing that. Yeah. Um. And, and then slap in the face. You... <laughs> you feel abandoned, you know. And that's you know. I mean, I've had uh, you know, I we and a lot of us dealt with it. Um kind of blindly when we got back because we we went back and we didn't go back in our normal decompression you know we got back and they're like okay go back to your organizations good luck and um i think after a couple of years we ended up doing a lot of reunions and get-togethers and we're able to like you know we sought treatment on our own paid out of pocket you know do yoga um medicinal plants, um, I, I did fascial release. I've done all kinds of things to heal my body and my mind. And it's a, it's, it's, a, it's an uphill battle, but you know, we're all getting through it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, as is often the case with women, you have to uh, form your own networks of support. Yes. It is interesting to me um, because you returned from Afghanistan in twenty eleven or twenty twelve. Twenty twelve. Yeah. Twenty twelve. So, yeah. um, because one of one of the things that I found fascinating and was actually in part uh, motivation to do this podcast was when I had the opportunity was because so starting with the lioness in 2003 mm-hmm. you know through really you're returning in 2012 after everything that the lioness teams did with the army with the marines that the female engagement teams did mm-hmm. that the cultural support teams did you did it all while the policy hung over yeah. that you were kind of not supposed to be doing this right technically right. you were probably violating the policy and you couldn't yeah. be attached uh, you couldn't be assigned you could only be attached in support yeah. of right and, and so it you know it put i mean what people have to come to understand is that for like 10 years you yeah. women operated in both theaters in this very gray zone 
Mm-hmm. And, and which actually made it very difficult to come back and get recognized and the services that you needed from the VA. Right. Does that track with um, experiences? That's, that's, that yes, it does. That's true. Like, and then when I came back, I went back to third division um, and I helped um, kind of uh, myself and some other former CSTs. We kind of uh, presented the division, you know, because they wanted to have FET teams for their upcoming deployments. And uh, we helped kind of put up a training program for them. Um, and we I think we called them Valkyries. Um, so, yeah. So when I left mm -hmm. Fort Stewart and I went to 25th Infantry Division, we, I helped set up that training program. There was one quote that I heard from a CST member. I think um, this was from you know after she had returned, and it sh and I was just wondering if if you had a take on this. She said, uh, so she she served as a CST member. Most women are reluctant to identify with their military experience because people don't validate their contributions. Um, that that's true. That's true. I mean, that's not true in all cases, but, you know, and, but it's there, you know, it's just a, a little stigma that, you know, sometimes you don't even want to talk about it because then they're like, you know, right. well, yeah, whatever, whatever. You guys are just there. You guys are just accessories or shows or whatever, like MWR support. And it's like, you know, that hurts my feelings because that's not, you know, I trained really hard. I worked really hard. Um, you know, we all did. Um, so that's not a fair analogy, but you know, it's not true 100% of the time, but when it does happen, it's just disappointing, to say the least. But sometimes these things have to just be happen enough times, not all the time, just enough of the time yeah. so that. Yeah. So you just, so just like, forget it. I don't want to talk about it. It's like a thousand paper cuts, you know? You, they just say things that just, just kind of hurt you, and you're just like, eh, never mind. I don't want to talk about it anymore. So. Um, tell us, tell us what, uh, what have you been up to since you retired? Um, well, that's been fun. Uh, so when I retired, I took a few months off, just did nothing, you know, just kind of was a little couch potato. Um, unfortunately, like I drowned my sorrows in beer and pork rinds or something like that. And then I was like, okay, that's enough. I gotta get, I gotta get moving. This is, I'm just gonna die here. Um, so I started working again. I was a contractor for the government. I was doing curriculum management um, and, uh, tr you know, training support, like uh, POIs and things like that for the Warren Officer Career College. I did that for about three years. And then, um, then I was done with that. And now I freelance. I'm a consultant with a wonderful company, Tomahawk Security Solutions. Um, they're former Navy SEALs, Army Rangers, uh, law enforcement, and we go around the country kind of teaching uh, situational awareness to interactive threat seminars, um, active shooter threat scenarios to tr help train local law enforcement, EMTs, fire departments, things like that. It's very rewarding. You know, it's things that come second, na second nature to us, uh, and we're able to c go around and, you know, just kind of show people how to be safe. You know, as a mother and a grandmother, you know, it gives me great honor and pleasure to be able to help keep as many people safe as I can. Um, and doing this work really gives me a sense of giving back. And it's a great company, great leaders, uh, great instructors. I definitely enjoy doing that. And I'm trying to get also involved wow. um, 
and local community here. I do the mission. I just started with the mission continues. Um, and they're kind of trying to talk to me into getting into some political stuff. But I'm not sure I'm ready for that hundred percent, but I have to, I have to give it some thought because it's important for people to, you know, if you're capable and you have something to say, it's important for us to, you know, still have a voice and get out there and get in front of people and, you know, and tell people what's, you know, what's going on and, and, and help and, and fight for people's rights, veterans' rights, not just females, you know, all veterans. You know, the VA system is broken, um, not in all places, but in many places. It's, our, it's really difficult to get help, especially mental health. Um, I'm very lucky that I am, I mean, I'm, even though I struggle with a brain injury and some other mental health disorders, I, I have it within me to still push through, but I have, I have a great feeling for people that don't have as much, you know, and it's a struggle getting through the VA system is, is a struggle. I still use TRICARE, you know, and things like that, but. I, you know, but you have to go through the VA in order to get your disabilities, you know, approved and recognized. But it's it's really hard. And I just right. want, if anything, I want the audience to know that. Yeah, that's very important, and I'm really glad you stated that so articulately because that's always an important uh, problem. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just unfortunate that sometimes to get um, support for mental health is the greatest struggle. Because yeah. that's actually when you, when you need that mental health support, it's often the times when that struggle is going to be the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, no, and I don't think that's just true for veterans. I think it's just a, a problem nationwide with healthcare, you know, getting mental health support. Um, you know, we went through a lot with COVID and uh, people people are really pushing through, you know, I have, have, have a lot of hope, you know, but it's, it's really difficult for everyone, you know, just to kind of get mental health and it's, it shouldn't be a stigma anymore. You know, a lot of people want to say, Oh, you know, I don't need that. I don't need therapy and things like that, but it's really important, you know, and it's okay. And it's okay. It's okay. The strongest people out there have a lot of internal turmoil and, and it's okay to go get help. I'm here to tell you it's helped me quite a bit. I just want to jump in and, and just, Say, uh, you know, in my time with the, the Veterans Breakfast Club, uh, the amount of time I've, I've spent talking with veterans, and, and the thing that I find always so amazing is this passion for service. And I just, I just want to applaud you for a couple of reasons. One being, um, despite all of the hardships, that you still have this passion for service. It's, it's so commendable. It's so inspiring to me. But I also want to thank you to say, like, I know that talking in talking with veterans, because I'm not a veteran myself, but in talking with veterans over the last several years, I know that climbing this mountain is not an easy thing to do. Um, you mentioned it before we started recording that it's it's needed, um, but I know that that's not yeah. easy, and I want to thank you for for doing that and and to climb that mountain with us here on the podcast today. And I want to thank you for giving us the platform and the voice to be able to do it. I mean, I'm so grateful. Thank you. Can you speak to the Raquel that decided to enlist and what your expectations were for your career and how that sort of shifted over the course of your time in the military and what your sort of, you know, why you stayed in? Sure. I grew up in Central America. I grew up in Panama. Uh, my dad was in the military and I went to DOD schools. Um, so I've always been kind of, um, you know, had knowledge of the military. It wasn't really in my original dreams to join the military. I wanted to be a marine biologist like every other kid in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. 
Um, and then we had a stabilization operation that took place in 1989, uh, Operation Just Cause, to remove uh, the Panamanian dictator Manuel Norega. And during that time, you know, our family lived off base and we got moved on the base and we were in the middle of a war-torn country, you know, like, um, and we had to get like military escorts to, on our school buses to go to school and things like that. And I remember, I remember just being just fascinated by the young military police women that, you know, came on there. They looked so like confident and sure of themselves. And I was just like, wow, that's that's really amazing. And there were not, and I was 17. I graduated when I was 17 and they were not much older than me. They were like 18 or 19. And I was like, wow, I really, you know what? I think that's what I want to do. <laughs> and I graduated early, but my parents did not want to sign off on me joining the military right away. They're like, are you sure? We want you to think about this. So, um, but I was, I was determined. I was headstrong. I was like, nope, I'm, I'm still doing it. So as soon as I turned 18, I went ahead. Recruiter, he had an easy job. Yeah, I was going to sign up regardless. So that was my original inspiration. Um, I ended up going to uh, Germany. That was my first duty assignment. Um, I was at the end of the Cold War. So um, I don't know. I just always, I really enjoyed it. It was a challenge, but at the same time, it was just in my blood. You know, I think I had that warrior spirit. Um, and I wasn't sure I was going to make a career out of it. But the more I did it, um, it was kind of a love-hate relationship kind of my love and hate living in the city. <laughs> um, it's just, it's a struggle, but you kind of like, you know, like it makes you feel alive. Like, okay, okay, we can do this. We can do this. And I just kind of kept doing it. You know, even I, I had my kids while I was in. Um, and then I was, I was fortunate enough to have a really diverse career. Started out avionics. I ended up, you know, becoming a warrant officer. We lived in Hawaii, we lived in Germany. We lived in uh, Savannah, Georgia. Um, I got to live in I, all over Georgia, actually. Um, I concluded my career in Fort Rucker. You know, I was teaching um, both. I was a attack officer instructor, so I taught new attack officers. Um, so yeah, so and at the time, and then when I retired, I, I retired at twenty eight. Um, I think at that time my body was just falling apart, so I couldn't serve in the capacity, uh, full capacity that I wanted to. So I was like, all right, my time here is done, and that's why I ended up retiring. After being dropped into Special Forces Safe House in southern Afghanistan for eight months, what did you learn about teamwork? Okay, so one of the most important lessons that I learned as a CST um, was to utilize tools of self-improvement. As a leader, um, not only a leader, I use this actually as a mother, sister, you know, partner, things like that. Um, and we do it naturally. We don't even realize it. Is uh, it's something that I teach actually now um, as a civilian to people to keep them safe. And it's um, using like the OODA loop, you know, is um, the one thing you can't change in your life is the circumstances that you're in. But, you know, how do you navigate that, you know, successfully is uh, you want to observe what's going on in your space. You know, want to orient yourself and um, make a decision and act on it. Right. And see what happens. And then you continuously do that you know, over and over in order to, you know, to either improve the situation or come to a conclusion or, you know, meet your mission, um, anything really, you know, what, what can you bring to the table, you know, uh, the game, the party, et cetera. It enables you to build a better understanding of yourself, build better teams, companies, families, anything. And um, that's pretty much like my words of wisdom or the advice that I like to put out to the audience, you know, just kind of, you know, be more situationally aware of where you are in a situation or circumstance and what you can do to make things happen. 
you find that you apply that in your own life every day? I do. I apply it all the time. I apply it um, with myself and my family, um, you know, my work, my business, um, you know, just, just everyday, everyday thing. You do it naturally, you know, think about it. You know, even if you go to a class, you show up, kind of take a look around the room and decide where you want to sit, you know. Um, you know, if your friends are around or things like that, you know, just everything, you know, if you go to a restaurant, um, you know, where do you want to be, you know, just kind of take a, take a look around and see, see what, see what's going on, you know, where are the exits, you know, just take one moment, you know, live your life, live your life freely, you know, but also be aware and know what's, what's happening so you can keep yourself safe and, um, you know, and happy. And is that also something you would use to kind of navigate through situations where there are differences of opinion that you yes. have to um, reconcile absolutely so one of the things i'm a very passionate person you know um and passion often gets um labeled as emotional you know emotions and logic you know kind of the biggest differences between men and women um is a tricky thing to navigate and you know if you take the time to self-assess you know, be honest with yourself, you know, what are you doing? And, um, you know, what can you do to make things better? I think that's really important. That certainly resonates with me being like a, you know, an actor artist background. I'm certainly yeah. more passionate for the most part than I am logical. Yeah. <laughs> and that gets labeled as emotional, but it's really just like, yeah. you know, you get really passionate yeah. about something. It's, it's yeah. just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and emotions, you know, are, are usually, you know, looked down upon, but you, but you feel what you feel in life, and that's part of being human, you know, and that's what makes it beautiful, and, uh, but it's important to, you know, to do all these things in order to make the world a better place. A high sort of emotional IQ or intuitive IQ uh, is really valuable in a range of situations, so I totally hear what you're saying, I, like, I really appreciate that uh, perspective. So thank you for sharing that with us. Well, I, I think that might um, be a good way to conclude our time together, which is I, you've generously given us so much of your time. Thank you, Raquel. You're very welcome. And, thank you. Um, this, is, this has been amazing. And it's so important that women come up. Um, and thanks to Sean and Todd at the Veterans Breakfast Club for providing the space for women to come and tell their stories. And that's what we're doing. And that's what you've done. And we thank you so much. My absolute pleasure. And to our audience, please right. like, share, and subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube. Contact us at VBC uh, if you have any thoughts or comments about the Lioness, the Origin Story podcast. You can contact me at Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org. Uh, we have a couple more episodes of Lioness podcast planned, uh, so look forward to more, and hopefully Shannon will be back joining us uh, in the next episode. Daria, uh, any final words before we sign off? Uh, no, I'm just, I, I, I can't stop thinking about what I've just, uh, what, the stories and and the experiences Raquel has just told us I'm going to sit with this one for a while so thank you very much everyone and have a have a good week thank you very much much love to you bye bye